Hey, this is Zach Catanzaro. And I'm Walker Lukens. We're the hosts of Song Confessional, the only podcast where today's top songwriters turn your anonymous stories into original songs. This week, we've got a salacious tale of train platforms and anonymous hookups. Austin songstress Buffalo Hunt transforms the confession into a cinematic indie pop gem, exploring the dark pleasures of our bad decisions. Listen to Song Confessional at KUTX.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. From KUT and KUTX Studios. Hello, and welcome to This Song, the podcast where artists talk about the songs that formed and transformed them. I'm your host, Elizabeth McQueen, and hey, happy holidays. Maybe you're on vacation. Maybe soon you will be on vacation. Maybe you'll be traveling. Maybe you'll be staying at home. Whatever your holiday plans are, we here at Team This Song hope yours is a good one. And if you're wondering what to get us, and by us, I mean the folks who make this podcast for the holidays, well, let me make it easy for you. We would love a rating or or review on the podcast app or iTunes. Like, it only takes a second. It makes a really big difference for us. And it's easy for you. There, it's taken care of. Thank you in advance. This week on this song, we're going to hear from composer and conductor Benjamin Walfish. He's known as a composer for film and television, like he composed the original score for Hidden Figures. And his work has been seen in two very recent releases, the remake of Stephen King's It and Blade Runner 2049. He collaborated on Blade Runner with Hans Zimmer. I spoke to Benjamin Walfish by phone, and I was excited and a little nervous because he's the first composer that I've spoken to for this podcast. I have to say, it was a delightful conversation, and it took me back to my own childhood. There is a particular piece which probably set me on the course I'm on now when I was very young, which is John Williams' score to E.T., uh, which I, I quite distinctly remember hearing, uh, I probably was around six or seven years old, uh, I think my parents took me to see it when I was much younger at the theatre, but for some reason my dad bought the vinyl um, and it was lying around the house and uh, we kept, uh, I, we just kept playing it and I was just fascinated with this emo- raw emotional impact this music had on me as a kid. I remember feeling almost quite frustrated because I just didn't understand why it made me feel these things and, and made me feel so terrified and uplifted and, and hopeful and uh, excited and depressed. You know, there's just such a, an emotional journey in that particular score. And, and I think it, it sort of inspired me to work and to just try and figure it out. I remember transcribing the, the piano piece over the end credits um, and, and just sort of trying to understand that chord progression and, and why it felt so searching but sort of so hopeful at the same time. I'm very lucky to come from a, a musical family where you know, both my parents um, are 
you know, classical musicians and grew up with all kinds of music being played live all through the house, pretty much all the time with our parents practicing. Um, and for me, music was always this, this thing which was performed in a kind of concert setting. And I guess at that age, when I kind of really understood how emotionally visceral film music can be, um, it just sort of, I don't know, I got, I got the bug pretty young, I think. Did you ever think that your emotional reaction to the music was connected to the visual images that you'd seen? I think at that age, I didn't. Um, and you, know, you, you sort of, it's actually very interesting when you look at the final sequence, the goodbye sequence in, in the forest, where there's pretty much no dialogue at all for, I don't know, five minutes or so. Uh, and it's just one of the most memorable emotional moments in cinema, especially for young people. <laughs> you take the score away, and it, it is such an extraordinarily just different experience. There was something about the the use of harmony in that particular score. I just remember as a kid, just like trying to understand the um, there's a there's a kind of, for example, the flying theme, uh, in the, the the most famous musical moment in that score with that that huge soaring tune. The reason it's so impactful is what comes before, and the 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 rise of tension and the, and and so that it really feels like a release at that point, and and, and you just can be ex you can exult in that theme, and it and it's it's all in the harmony, uh, and I guess I was uh, <laughs> I had no idea what it was, and and I just remember playing it over and over and on the LP and just trying to figure it out on the piano. grandfather was a pianist um, and the piano was always like a very much associated with him he had this influence on me as a very young person I feel like he I remember distinctly him putting me on his knee while he was practicing and just so I could get into and he would always talk about harmony and how the piano is this sort of vehicle for not just melody but but you know it's it's a what you can create on the piano harmonically using chords, using chord sequences, is is something I think that I, I was really aware of from a young age. Melody is so dependent on how it's performed. It's that single line. Whereas when you're dealing with chords and with harmonies, there's a sort of inherent emotional truth to a particular chord progression or a particular harmonic sequence, even if it's very simple, that can have a very immediate emotional impact. Well, and you're the first film composer that I've talked to, and so I'm, I'm interested to know when you're talking about emotion, you have kind of a different 
mandate than other artists. Other artists are trying to express maybe their own emotions or interpret um, work that other people have written. But you're really, you have this collaborative mandate where you're trying to figure out how to how to move a narrative or like show the emotion of a moment um, that you didn't create. And so I'm wondering, does it become kind of, does each movie become a puzzle? Does each scene become a, a new, like almost adventure? You've sort of answered the question just, just then by saying, yes, the, the answer is yes, it is a puzzle and it is an adventure. And I think it's important not to think of yourself as a film composer. It's like you've got to think of yourself as a filmmaker so that you're talking the language of of other departments and, and of the director. Um, but you still have to somehow bring something of yourself um, to, to the table, you know, because that's why they may have brought you on, because you might have a certain sound or a certain kind of aesthetic. But that often is, is, is you know, it's always going to be superseded by the needs of a particular film. There's a sort of really fine line which I try to balance, if that's the way to say it, where where you're, you know, when you're watching the movie, the music is is creating this powerful environment for the audience to just experience their own emotions. You should never dictate emotion or, you know, telegraph or, or tell anyone what to feel. But you just sort of allow them into a world where they they it's almost they can't resist that feeling if that makes any sense um and then at the same time it's uh you know you you've got to just somehow find your find your way through a through a story and and through a collaboration which you know sometimes you you just have to reinvent the the tools you use for each film well i'd be interested to know what that process looks like i mean you have two films that came up out back to back the um it and also Blade Runner that you worked on with Hans Zimmer and they're two totally different scores um, and so I'm wondering if maybe we could talk about that process of trying to figure out what a film needs through comparing those two but I, I would love to hear kind of what like the juxtaposition of those two experiences was well yeah couldn't be more different really um, it uh, was the very first conversations I had with Andy Muschietti and, and Barbara Muschietti, the producer, Andy, the director, the first conversation we had is, actually, this is not a horror score. This has to be an adventure score. Um, and this this is about kids who feel like they're outcasts and who discover that incredible strength when they come together and and then are forced to... I mean, they, you know, that when the temptation comes to separate... They, they realize that unless they stay together, they will all be killed. Um, and there's a, I don't know, the, the, the coming of age element of that and the chemistry between the characters, and in particular the way the characters are played in this film, amazing on-screen chemistry, was pretty much all we needed to start. Um, you know, that we knew, of course, the Pennywise theme was going to have to be a, a really big part. And, and, and obviously the, the horror elements all goes without saying. We knew we were on that path.
much more important than that was was how do we convey the sense of adventure and and make something that that really feels like a mission film and and you know his bill inspiring these other kids you know from his sense of guilt uh you know to go on a mission to 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 defeat this sort of unimaginable evil that you know personifies the bespoke fears of each each of these kids um that is a there's something to that which there was a clue there um and and it really was actually more about just you know being uh, you know it's an adventure In the case of Blade Runner, you know, there's Vangelis and there's this extraordinary, incredible score, sort of geniusly iconic thing, musical language that is sort of tied in so closely to the original. The very first conversation we had, which was just like, a, I mean, really, it was with Denis, the director, Joe Walker, Hans and myself, and this idea that how do we pay our respects to Vangelis, but really make it new and bespoke? Because, he, you know, Denis Villeneuve, this extraordinary filmmaker, true visionary genius, who who is able to actually, he has a, he has a, his films are so distinctive and, and, they feel so authentic um, emotionally. It's it's it, it, the film is so different in that respect to the original, but it still, you know, clearly is of that world, and and it feels very natural. So, how did we translate that into music? That was our first discussion, um, and really the the answer was to just try try things, and we found that the film rejected a lot it rejected the orchestra completely uh the film had to the movie had to have a um the, what i'm trying to say is that the music i guess is it was such an integral part to the experience of the first film so we had to be in that synthesizer world but it the story required a very different approach you know it's interesting some some people have observed kind of why didn't you go more melodic and more, you know, the, the sort of Vangelis approach, I guess, to the original. And we tried that, but the film, it just didn't work. The, there was a, is a very different aesthetic here. Um, the, I guess the questions which the first movie kind of looks at are, are examined in such sort of deep emotional detail now um, with Blade Runner 2049, the idea of what is human consciousness? I mean, it's funny enough we were discussing that earlier. Um, and you know what is it to have a soul um that's explicitly at the core of the story and you know attempting to find a musical analog to that it was you know which is 
it was very hard. And actually the, <laughs> the only way we could do it was strip away anything peripheral and find a, a central theme which just sort of, you know, just communicated that, um, I guess communicated a, qu a question which we didn't really attempt to answer. But it just put the audience in that in that state of mind, hopefully, uh, and accompanying uh, Kay on that incredible journey he goes on. almost like scoring films or your desire to score films is very closely related to your desire to understand how music works. Is that right? Wow. I mean, that's, that's a really interesting observation. I mean, I, I guess so. I mean, look, that, that whole thing of figuring out how music works, that, that's a lifelong thing. I think whether you're a composer or performer someone who just loves music it's it's a, a, I think that's one of the best things about it there's always more to discover there's always more questions that come from what you think were answers there's that kind of shared human need to express ourselves in 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 sound that that is sort of inherently emotional and I think with film music your role is to bring a, a sort of a narrative uh, a kind of visceral emotional narrative to what's on the screen and and when i say that it doesn't necessarily mean it's it's big or intense it can be very subtle or very small but it's tangible and i think in, in order to do that it's important to sort of tap into the core of what music is which is it's an emotional form of communication and and for whatever reason it's been around since humans have been around in one form or another and it's something everyone can relate to um, it's impossible not to react to music, even if you hate it. It's still a reaction. We talk about this a lot, actually, on this podcast, this kind of emotional component of music. And I, and I wonder if you have any theories about why music does that. I mean, you've thought, obviously, a lot about how it does it. But, like, how, why does music... How can, how can we feel sound? That it doesn't make any sense. No, it does. <laughs> and, I mean, really, that is one of the big questions which I think a lot of people are, are trying to answer. Um, I mean, I guess there are theories about how our way of communicating with words and with our voices is melodic. I mean, right now we're both using melody to communicate meaning. I just finished a sentence because the pitch went down. And you just asked a question because the pitch went up. Um, and in different cultures, there's different interpretations of that. But the rhythm of speech is kind of... A really, if you want to start from like the fundamental element, we're, we're constantly using melody to communicate meaning, meaning, um, and what, and also it's a very good way of of retaining tradition over over a long period of time because melodies are very easy to remember and they become cultural, they become in, sort of embedded in in a historical like what you can become proud of, like why do we have national anthems for example, and that goes right back to ancient, ancient discoveries of, you know, early civilizations where, you know, th there was no notation, but there's evidence that it wasn't just verbal communication. Words are obviously specific 
to language. But music is kind of goes underneath what words are. I, I feel like for me personally, um, my own experience was that music kind of is family and it is home. Um, the, you know, whenever I hear a cello, it's very hard for me to break the association of the cello with my dad. And the same with the violinist, my mum. And hearing the cello played every morning, playing Johann Sebastian Bach, um, one of the suites, the solo cello suites, <clears throat> that is the sort of, that equals waking up to, the, you know, he would get up six in the morning and play that as a warm-up. Um, and I don't know, that I think music has such this associative power. Everyone has had an experience like that with a piece of music or a song or whatever it is that brings them back to a certain place or a certain emotional state. And I think the orchestra used in film music has, definitely has that impact on people. Yellow Raincoat from the It soundtrack, which Benjamin Walfish composed. And this soundtrack, as well as the Blade Runner 2049 soundtrack, are available everywhere in case you wanted to give it to someone for the holidays. You could also give someone the movie version of It. Like, it's available on DVD and Blu-ray and for download, like, however you want to see it. And don't worry, Blade Runner 2049 is coming out for download the day after Christmas, December 26th. Now, I don't know about you, but I felt that associative power that Benjamin talked about when I was listening and re-listening to this episode, getting it ready. Like, I had forgotten how powerful the E.T. score is. I pretty much cried my way through the editing process, and I will definitely be watching that movie with my kids during the holidays. And speaking of the holidays... We hope you have a good holiday, filled with peace and joy and whatever you need to get ready for 2018. And that's it. You've come to the end of another episode of This Song. This song is a production of KUTX 98.9 in Austin, Texas. This episode was produced and edited by Art Levy, David Sanger, and me, Elizabeth McQueen. Kelly Seal is our excellent intern. Aaron Waltz is our social media intern. Thanks to Deidre Gott and Peter Babb and Todd Callahan for all they do for this podcast. And it is true. Our theme song is Mahout by Austin's own Hard Proof. Right on. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. KUT's next AT Explained live show is April 3rd. Brand new stories about Austin's people, places, and culture told live on stage by your favorite KUT journalists. I've never gotten any specific invites from Steiner Ranch. And that's about the time Charlie chomped down on that chicken. I will hypnotize you into securing my law services. Join us April 3rd at the Paramount Theater for KUT's next AT Explained Live. Tickets are on sale now. Get them at austintheater.org. And we'll see you there.